Wrestling fans, welcome to a birthday edition of the Charting the Territories podcast. But you see, it's not just one birthday we're celebrating, it's two. Because not only is it the one year birthday, uh, the first birthday of this very podcast, it is also uh, the birthday month of my esteemed co-host, Mr. John Boucher. Ooh, thank you. Thank Happy you. birthday. Wish... Thank you. I thought you were going to talk about Paul McCartney or something. But, uh, it's his birthday today, I believe. But uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing my birthday. I thank Yes, absolutely. Happy birthday and happy birthday to this podcast. Of course, my name is Russ. Al Getz. And as I mentioned, this is our first birthday. This is technically our 13th monthly episode. But uh, our first one came out last June. And so now we are officially one year old. Oh. So congratulations to us. Yes. And congratulations to you, John, on a birthday and a wedding and all sorts of great stuff happening in your life the last yeah. couple of months. Crazy, crazy couple months. It's finally settling down and it's, now it's summer and everything's starting to open up. People are wanting to, I feel like I don't have a, a free weekend until September now because every every weekend someone's like, let's, we haven't seen each other in a year and a half. So it's getting getting crazier and crazier by the minute. Yeah, I just booked, I actually just booked my hotel stay for Las Vegas for Cauliflower Alley Club in September. And I also made travel arrangements to go to Waterloo, Iowa for the Fez Tragos uh, Hall of Fame ceremony next month. Oh, wow. Uh, I I do have to figure out how to get from Cedar Rapids to Waterloo because the rental car companies, I think, know exactly what I'm doing. Um, And you can't get a direct flight into Waterloo. So I had to fly into Cedar Rapids, which is an hour away. And uh, I really don't want to rent a car for an obscene amount of money for a few days just to drive it, you know, one hour each way. I bet, I, I, what about an Uber? You think they have think they have Uber out there in Iowa? They do have Uber. And, you know, they do often have, you know, long trips like that. I, from what I have heard, I've never done it. But um, sometimes drivers, you know, because drivers don't know where you're going when, when they, yeah. uh, you know, when they get the, the, the caller and the message to pick you up. So I have heard of some drivers, you know, saying, yeah, no, no, not going to happen. And they just cancel it once they find out. Uh, But I think, you know, if I do that and particularly there, they might have had it happen enough that it's not, you know, something new. And I I guess I would just offer them, you know, a cash tip uh, to take me because it's priced, you know, it's priced uh, based on the fact they have to go up there and back. So I assume it's not cheap, but it would definitely be cheaper than renting a car for the duration of the trip. Yeah, we did that. Sarah and I, my wife, we did that in when we were out out west in uh, California, uh, like San Francisco, uh, and we took one from I think like Sonoma all the way back to like the San Francisco airport, and you know we just tipped tipped the woman in cash and talked about it in advance, and it was ended up being cheaper than the cheapest way to do it for us. With ni- neither of us, you know, having lived in in the city for twenty years. Neither of us have actual driver's licenses anymore. So it, it worked out. Yeah. So that's an option I'll look into. Uh, or maybe, who knows, maybe the prices on rental cars will drop significantly over the next couple of weeks if I wait till the last minute. Yeah. But who knows? We have so many options now. And back in 1964 and 1973, <laughs> John, they did not have these options. Instead, they had to put a lot of miles on their own car. And this month, we are going to look at the second quarter of 1964 in the McGurk territory, which features some well-known newcomers that aren't usually associated with Leroy McGurk in the Oklahoma slash 
Louisiana Territory. From there, we'll fast forward to the second quarter of 1973. We've mentioned previously that Bill Watts uh, left the territory and went to Georgia uh, to help fill up the roster after the split between Gunkel and uh, Fuller Jones at all. Uh, so we'll look at how the roster changes in 1973 in the McGurk Territory. And among the newcomers or returnees are a gypsy, a butcher, and a Tarzan. There are no bakers, there are no candlestick makers that I know of, but there's a few interesting characters, as uh, always. Yes. Oh, yes. We're also going to talk about uh, the year 1973, but in a different territory, and that is Amarillo, as we're going to talk about the Western States Sports Almanac that mm. Charting the Territories released earlier this month. It's a detailed look at one year in the life of a wrestling territory, and man, that Amarillo roster in 1973, it's like a who's who. You have... <sighs> Three three members of the Funks. Um, of course, 1973 is an important year in the Funk family, and that is the year that George mm -hmm. Sr. passed away. Uh, but also Ciclone Negro, Dick Murdoch, two rookies named Hanson and Saruta, and a whole lot more. Oh, yeah. But among the many names uh, in Amarillo in 1973, we're going to take a closer look at a man who has a child lived in the Netherlands while it was occupied by Nazi Germany, and years later found great success portraying a German heel wrestler in the U.S., Canada, Japan, and Australia. It's an interesting story when you consider his background, the role he played. Uh, similar to last month, we were talking about Sylvester Ritter and some of the things he experienced growing up in a newly and reluctantly desegregated school system, and how that you know sort of played into his later career, where you know there was you know a racial tinge uh, sort of bubbling under the surface of a lot yep. of the angles he portrayed as the junkyard dog. So it's just interesting to see how their early life experiences ended up perhaps being inspiration for their later roles in professional wrestling. Yep. We're also going to talk about two short form podcasts Ooh. released earlier this month on our podcast feed. John and I are each going to name one new thing we learned on this month. I learned we're going to talk about uh, just a couple of days before we are recording this. Uh, Jerry Briscoe and uh, Bradshaw uh, posted an interview with Mike McGurk on the YouTube, on their YouTube channel, uh, Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And we also have part one of an interview I conducted with Gil Culkin, son of Mississippi-based wrestler turned promoter George Culkin. So we're going to have a couple of uh, discussions of alternative viewpoints uh, alternative storytelling. We we hear a lot about Bill Watts's version of what happened uh, through his uh, book and and through various interviews over the years and through his associates uh, Jim Ross, Cornette, Meltzer. A lot of times, the things they discuss when talking about wrestling in Mid South and the McGurk territory, uh, it all emanated from Watts. But here we're gonna have Mike McGurk's uh, angle on some stories, and we're gonna talk a little bit with Gil Culkin. This first part is just pretty basic talking about the towns that his father ran for Leroy in the early 1970s. But uh, there are going to be two more parts coming in later episodes of this podcast. But we're going to start things off, John, with shit, John bought me <laughs> off eBay. And last month, which was the first month we did this, I was completely unprepared. And I spent many, many minutes unwrapping these uh, packages. But I have pre-opened them. And uh, I have no idea what's inside what's inside. Um, but while I'm getting the first one ready, John, I do want to ask, were there any items that you originally wanted to buy that you got outbid on? And if so, what were they? I did. I did not. Um, I, I 
for both of these, I stuck with uh, the old buy it now. Oh, okay. Uh, See, I, and that's funny because the whole point of this was I was hoping you were going to save me money because I'm I'm the type of person on eBay. If <laughs> if there's a bid on something, let's say the bid right, right now is twelve dollars and there's a week left and they've got to buy it now for nineteen, I'm like, yes, buy it now because who knows what will happen in the next week? I want an oompa yeah. loompa and I want it now. So I was hoping you would be more disciplined with my money, but apparently you're just just clicking on buy it now. But don't, let's 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 see, well, let's let, see what let's, it is. Well, so this and first, also we we should also mention that who came in under budget this this month. That's right? true. You did come in slightly under budget, so that under is budget. excellent. Remember, uh, John is authorized to spend approximately fifty dollars <laughs> of my money uh, buying me stuff off eBay to add to my. <laughs> ostensibly wrestling collection, but really there's no, uh, there's no limit. So this first item I'm going to open up comes from an eBay seller in Delray beach, Florida. Okay. Uh, not Jimmy, not Jimmy Delray, of course. Um, but this one, uh, it's in a, uh, priority mail size envelope. And there's a note on the front of the envelope that says bonus included. Thank you. Oh, so whatever is in here perhaps might be above and beyond what you were paying for. We'll see. So we will find out. Perhaps. Okay, opening it up. I'm trying to be very careful. Kind of looks like it's like a one of those like stickers that you get from like Cracker Jack box or something. But here we go. Okay. Yes, that's exactly that's exactly what it is. All right. Well, first, okay. These are, I guess, stencils or of some sort. But here is a picture of Andre the Giant uh, with two guys in a headlock. It's a it's an iron on. It's a, uh, that's what an iron on. Okay, I don't yes. I don't know what I'm talking yes. about. Okay, so it's an iron on for my denim for my denim vest. Yes, you could, okay. yeah, you could do that. You could. Uh, uh, I'm curious about this one because it, it, it's listed. As, it was listed as vintage. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And it looks old. The photo, it looked like old. And it's an older photo of Andre. Like, I'm not super familiar with that photo. It's not yeah, he's like, got, you know, when uh, he's got a bolt. He's got two wrestlers in headlocks, one, one with each arm. I and, can't, and, I can't make out the wrestler because the wrestlers, because a, I'm looking, if you've ever seen an iron on decal, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, I'm looking at it through uh, another sheet of paper, translucent. So, yeah. but there's one blonde wrestler and one dark haired wrestler. Yeah. The only, the only negative feedback I saw for this seller was people complaining about the vintage iron-ons not transferring properly when people tr- would try to do it at home with a with an iron or whatever. So if you're planning on putting this on the back of your denim vest, uh, go to a professional and have it done with like a heat press. I, or just I'll, keep I'll, it call my, I'll call my denim guy. Denim guy. Okay, cool. I got a denim guy. All right. <laughs> and so the uh, the bonus item is another iron-on decal um, uh, that says Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay. So I perhaps I can wear that when I go to the Cauliflower Alley Club <laughs> reunion and convention in September of this year it's fantastic. in Las Vegas. <laughs> All right. So we got an iron-on decal. So uh, if you ever see Al Getz wearing a denim jacket or vest of some sort with Andre the Giant uh, decal on it, you now know it came from shit John bought me <laughs> off of eBay. Now, item number two came from uh, California, I believe. And there, it, there's a few items in here. There's uh, something in uh, some a small sheet of paper, and then there's something that is wrapped up. Uh, it's almost triangular in shape. But we're going to start with the smaller item. Um, we have, oh, you, you mentioned you like stationary. Yeah. 
So this is from the desk of Roy Shire. Ah, uh, the professor. Oh, yes. This is a, uh, uh, the letterhead on the top says NWA. It's got the, the NWA logo a lot of you are familiar with, but there's also another, uh, like a button-shaped logo that says National Wrestling Alliance, Sam Mushnick, president. And then underneath it says a cooperative of wrestling promoters in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and Japan with affiliates in other countries. That doesn't top the list of the stationery from Paul Bowser last month, where he said he had satellite offices in like Uruguay and Guam and all sorts of (laughs) weird places. But yeah. Okay. So that is a, um, a, you know, uh, paper size, eight and a half by 11 size letterhead, but there is also a smaller uh, sheet of paper that, that is a memo from the desk of Roy Shire. And these are, these are not written on, these are empty, um, unused, uh, stationary, uh, but it's a memo from the desk of Roy Shire. And then there is something that says, okay, it says original cow palace rope. Is that the thing that's in this other? I guess I I don't know. But here, this stationery says Professor Roy Shire, world's outstanding wrestler. Interesting phrasing. And yeah, this is an actual piece of the ropes from the Cow Palace. That's cool, right? I thought that was cool. This is wild. I like it actually. All right. You can hear this. It's, It's yeah. That's me knocking on it. It's uh. I would not want to run into these ropes. Let me tell you that. But so it's a, it's about a, let let's see, ten inch or so. Should be ten inch. Should be ten yeah. inches. Yes. So a ten inch piece of one of the ropes from the original ropes in the Cow Palace in San Francisco, or if we want to be really technical, Daly City, California. I think the seller here may be Shire's niece. I'm not sure. I bought one of these from her like a year and a half ago. And back then she was selling for like $50 a foot. Uh, I should have held out for a better, better deal. Uh, well, at this point, buy enough pieces and we can, re- I can recreate the whole ring. If we get all the rope, I can, I can have the, you know, we can have the cow palace in my condo. Yeah. They, when I got mine, they sort of secured the ends with electrical tape. So if you can, so if they did yes. that, you can remove those and you could actually feel like the cable. And it's like, it's pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Cool. Uh, yeah. So, I, and of course, uh, as our listeners know, I worked in indie wrestling for many years. I have run into ring ropes many a time, and uh, we we describe them as steel cables because that's really what's inside them. John, have you ever had the opportunity to run the ropes in a okay. professional okay. wrestling ring? No, I've never even been remotely close to a a wrestling ring. Uh, <laughs> never. I should stay far away. From one, I think I would. I would like to. Why? Why? Should, why should you stay far away from one? I don't think I'm that athletic. Uh, <laughs> I I would like to, you know. I think I would do all the things. I would like to see how you know what's the mat feel like. You right. know, do like elbow drop, do an elbow drop or something, not from the ropes or anything, just to see what it just what it's like, and just you know do the. You know, like pull pull the ropes like I was going to have a match just to see how how taut they are. Mm-hmm. Running the ropes like from everything I've seen on those like tough enough shows, running, running the ropes seems like about 500 times more difficult 
than it looks. Uh, Maybe so. not 500, not difficult, uh, but painful. Mm. It definitely hurts. Uh, uh, but, and yeah, you know, you, there's a certain grace to hitting the <laughs> hitting the ropes, uh, you know, at the right angle on the right step. Um, and then, you know, you're for a lot of times you're used to a ring of a certain size and every now and then you work for a promotion, which it, with a different size ring. Oh. And if you're used to taking X number of steps when running the ropes, uh, all of a sudden you have to adjust. It can be jarring, but there we go. I now have, I own a piece of the cow palace wrestling ring piece of history. Plus, I well, I don't have a denim jacket. I'm I'm going to have to go. I do have one, but it's got all it's it's a Metallica one that has uh, all sorts of Metallica stuff already on it. So I don't have a blank denim vest. I may have to buy one so I can iron on my lovely Andre the Giant decal that John bought me off of eBay. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Enjoy. Enjoy. Let's move on to the second quarter of 1964 in the Leroy McGurk territory. Looking at the roster, there's some big changes. Uh, Danny Hodge leaves at the end of May and goes to Florida for a few months. And remember, Hodge debuted in October 1959. And for much of that time, he has been here as a regular. I think he had one excursion where he went to Tennessee for a while and one when he went to East Texas for a while. And of course, he takes the occasional, you know, couple of weeks to travel here or there. But for most of the last four and a half years, Hodge has been here, you know, full time and hasn't been gone for more than a couple of weeks. But he's going to leave for several months. Also leaving are uh, Anton Ripper Leone, Pat Patterson, Terry Garvin, Frankie Kane, and Kit Fox. Kit Fox is a Native American wrestler, and what's really interesting, but also not at all surprising and funny, is that the week Fox leaves, the following week, uh, Chief Little Eagle comes in. So we lose one Native American, and we gain another almost uh, nah. pretty much taken up his spot. Aside from Little Eagle, John, there's three high-profile pri- high Newcomers, Heels, Art Nielsen, and Mike Gallagher, and babyface Bobby Graham. So let's start by talking about Art Nielsen. Mm. Um, depending on where, you know, what territory you follow, you may know him as Art Nelson. Um, but he's Art Nelson in some places and Art Nielsen in others. And at one point, he actually teamed up with Reggie Lazowski. Yep. And then years later... Art teamed with Stan Nielsen as a brother team. Now, Stan Nielsen had previously been Stan Lazowski and teamed with <laughs> Reggie Lazowski. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, a uh, fake wrestling family tree uh, yeah, with yeah. a weird sort of look to it. Uh, on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, we're going to link to a bunch of websites. And we're going to talk about that uh, to give you a little more background on the Nielsen team. There's a profile on the Wrestling Scout website. So Art Nielsen's real name's Arthur Nelson. He's from Windsor, Ontario. Stan Nielsen was born Stanley Hollick, H-O-L-E-K, and he's from Chatham, Ontario. So they are both originally from Ontario, uh, and they worked together as a team in the early 60s between 1961 and 1964 in places such as Detroit, the AWA, San Francisco, Stampede, and Los Angeles. Uh, there's also an article from the Mid-Atlantic Gateway 
uh, which is entitled Hearing Art Nelson for the Final Time, sort of. John, did you look over that article? Oh, yeah. That's just a really good uh, career synopsis with some uh, recollections from someone who someone who was there watching. Um, I don't know if it's this article or the uh, the wrestling scout one, but I, uh, one of the interesting things about art is art is one of was the guy who taught Ric Flair the art of blading, which I thought was an interesting little tidbit uh, from his career. Um, but art, and, you know, he, he's described the way he's described here. He really seems like the kind of guy who would work equally well as a kick-ass, no-nonsense, gravelly-voiced babyface or, or a mean, dastardly heel. And I love there's, there's a little thing Gary Hart would do. Is get, even though he was working as Art Nelson there, Gary Hart would refer to him as Art Nielsen in interviews. Uh, don't know if that was accidental. I want to think it was like a deliberate like sort of like almost like sort of devious Gary Hart way being like, I got the inside track on you, Nielsen. Um, yeah. Gary always had some, touch. some weird affectations that he, he would use in his speech. Yes. Uh, I was also, I was reading earlier today on Twitter. Um, uh, I guess in the mid eighties, JJ Dillon, his uh, title, uh, you know, as his, as far as his role in the four horsemen, was changed regularly, and and I and uh, so people are speculating if this was just an inside joke or perhaps some sort of commentary on corporate America reshuffling and rebranding everybody. But you know, JJ Dillon, whether he was the president or executive administrator or whatever, his uh, the the title they would announce him as apparently changed often in <laughs> Mid Atlantic. Uh, but Gary Hart, he would yeah, he would sometimes have very weird nicknames for wrestlers. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, I can't, but that you know, Moon. Did, yeah. Man gang. Moon. Yeah. <laughs> so that is just uh just one of those crazy characters. We also there's a really nice picture of him from Getty Images, um him posing at the bottom of a stairwell uh from approximately 1950. So if you go to our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, we will have all of these links. We're also going to have some pictures uh from some uh documents we've dug up including a great program from Minneapolis, Minnesota, hyping the September 1st, 1953 card. And John, what was the question asked on the headline of this program? Who has the, in quotes, throat stump? Who has the best throat stump? (laughs) Yes. Hard-boiled Haggerty and Art Nelson will decide. So it's between hard-boiled Haggerty and Art Nelson. They also make a good point of mentioning that in September 1953, the arena in Minneapolis is air-cooled. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that's that's a a great little uh, headline. Who has the best throat stomp? Who has the best axe handle? That's what I want to know. (laughs) Oh, we have to talk about that article. Yeah, there's there's also, we're going to post a page from an article of the May 1974 issue of Official Wrestling, which talks about Art Nelson bringing an axe handle to the ring for a match, and apparently the referees really don't care. But what's interesting, (laughs) John, going back to our long-term discussion of the dates of these wrestling magazines... Uh, This magazine was dated May 1974, based on what's written in the article about um, Nelson fighting against the Andersons and there was interference from the masked menace. The menace was only there in the first, I think, four or five months of 1973. Oh, wow. So again, (laughs) we have another example of the date 
of these magazines being about a year after the events of which they describe happen. But this is Art Nelson and his axe handle written by Mary Ellington for official wrestling in May 1974. I love articles like this where it seems as if the creative process behind the, the, the article was like, okay, we got we got 10, 15 cool house show photos with a lot of blood. Can we make a story out of this? <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's what they did a lot of times. They had the pictures yeah. uh, and, you know, they had a great network of photographers, including uh, our, our old pal Lil Al Vavasour, who did the photos uh, in Louisiana for McGurk. And yeah, I guess they just sort of made up their own narrative. Yeah. Around like this is describing was... that art brings an axe handle to the ring for a match and the referee can't stop him. It's funny when I was looking, you know, Art Nelson in 1973, 74, no longer a, a cover star by that point in his career. Um, so I'm looking through the table of contents in this magazine. I saw uh, axe handle. I'm like, it seems like such an innocuous type of move to have an article written about. Then I get to the article I'm like, oh, OK, he's actually carrying a literal axe handle to the ring. Tied to his wrist. <laughs> yes. I thought, yeah, not what I thought I was getting into. Yeah, we've got uh, some links to some YouTube videos. We talked about art teeling with art teaming with Reggie Lazowski before Reggie was known as the Crusher. And we've got a YouTube video from the Chicago International Amphitheater, August 26th, 1955. Way back, baby. Art Nielsen and Reggie Lazowski versus the Mighty Atlas and Billy Gulls. Gels? Gels? Gels, I guess. Gels? I'm going Gels. I'm going Gels. All right. We think it's Gels. There's also some footage from Mid-Atlantic, probably right around the time that uh, he was bringing this axe handle to the ring. But this is Art and Johnny Weaver versus Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen, the classic Mid-Atlantic heel tag team of the uh, probably a couple of decades, if not even more. I don't know how long Hawk and Hansen uh, teamed in Mid-Atlantic, but they had a very long and successful run there. So you can check out those YouTube videos on our blog. But that is Art Nielsen. And this, I believe, was his only time in the McGurk territory. I think for all three of these wrestlers, this was their only time in the McGurk territory. Art Nielsen, Mike Gallagher, and Bobby Graham. Um, And if I'm jumping the gun, we could talk about this later, but... and and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In the Mike McGurk interview, did she mention that Art Nelson was booking for Leroy? I believe she was referring to the um, period between '79 and '82. Okay, cool. Um, because she uh, right after Art mentions George Scott. Yes. Uh, okay. So yep. Art, I can't. I don't think Art wrestled, but that that's when. So that explains why Rip Hawk was there. Because Rip Hawk came in before Snooker and Paul Jones. And that was uh, obviously George Scott's doing, bringing them from Mid-Atlantic. So, yeah, Rip Hawk had come in earlier. So that almost certainly would be when Art was booking for Leroy McGurk in the uh, post-Split with Watts era. So this would have been probably mid to late 1981. Yeah, so that's that's many years later. So this yeah. was his only appearance in the ring for McGurk, but then he came back almost 20 years later to do some booking yeah. for Leroy. Another one is Mike Gallagher, and Mike is best known as a uh, one half of a brother tag team along with Doc Gallagher. And the Gallagher brothers were from Bayonne, New Jersey. Bayonne, baby. And when I first read that, I, there was, I knew there was someone... I, I thought there was a wrestler, a famous wrestler from Bayonne. 
there's a famous boxer, but he has a very big wrestling connection. Uh, and that is Chuck Wepner, who, of course, fought Andre the Giant. Uh, but Chuck was known as the Bayonne Bleeder. And Chuck was yeah. also the inspiration for the Rocky. Rockies. That's a great 30 for 30, too. Have you seen that 30 for 30? I haven't seen I that one yet. I, I'm I only, just well, I've the seen real about Rocky. 20 of the 30 for 30s. And of course, silly me, I thought there were only 30 of them. But there are way more than 30, yeah. 30 for yeah. 30s. So they should um, be sued for false advertising. There's a, uh, my wife is originally, was born born in Bayonne, New Jersey. You know, you know what they say. They say, if, if she's from Bayonne, leave her alone. Oh, my goodness. I have not I did, heard that. I, I did not take that advice, though. Um yeah, her, her, she still has family there, and we, you know, sometimes we'll be walking around in the summertime or whatever. And there's actually a, a Chuck Wepner mural that is uh, there, and it's it's like it's, it's very it's cool to see. It's like the whole side of a building is a giant Chuck Wepner mural. Yeah, awesome. That's pretty cool. <laughs> now the Gallagher brothers actually are, are one of the biggest tag teams of all time. As a matter of fact, according to the great uh, authors, co-authors Greg Oliver and Stephen Johnson, they're in the top 20 tag teams of all time. They were number 17, according to their book, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Tag Teams. Great book. So they're number 17. John, who who was just ahead of them? Who was number 16? 16 were uh, the interns and, and, and Dr. Ken Ramey. Uh, okay, so this uh, is it a specific version of the interns? It's mo- it's mostly centers on uh, Jim Starr and Billy Garrett. Okay, so um, Garrett has, as opposed has, to Andrews, done, it has done and Andrews mentioned in it too, but it's mostly centers on uh, Starr and Garrett, though. Okay, when when we talked a couple of months ago about the medics coming in in 1977 with Akbar, that was uh, that was Starr and Andrews. So the interns were also the medics. And it's so funny how, how, you know, nowadays it sounds weird to have wrestlers called the interns. But I think the, the, the gimmick they used was that they were medical professionals. Thus, they knew all the various ways to hurt people. Yes. And because they had this, quote unquote, real job, this esteemed profession, they had to conceal their true identities. Yes. And they also had uh, easy access to ether. <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> that was one of the other things too all right uh, so they were behind the interns who were they ahead of who's number 18 on this great list of top 20 tag teams by greg oliver and stephen johnson uh the kalmakoffs uh again primarily ivan and carol kalmakoff um but they also mention uh nikita kalmakoff nikita Mulkovich, who we talked about right. and carol and was carol carol krauser yes okay yes we so, yeah, so him. a couple of wrestlers that have been and here. And also mentioned Igor Kalmakov, who was Eric Pomeroy, who I think we just talked about last month. Yeah, so Stan Vachon. A, a, a lot of stuff going on here. The Gallagher's, I mean, they really are. I mean, I know they're rated, uh, you know, on the top 20 teams of all time, but it's still like I hate using the the the, the term underrated. But like that, the, all those tired cliches really apply to these guys, like underrated, underappreciated, forgotten very innovative, influential. I mean, they got to be like up there with like the Fargos and the Grams. And they have that dynamic going on where they had like the old veteran member of Doc, who I think was like was like 15 years older than his younger brother. And then the brash, handsome youngster, Mike. Um, and, from the, the, and from the video that's out there of them, I and mean, when you read about them, you could tell they're just great at at getting tons and tons of heat. But we're also able to slip in a little bit of humor 
into their matches in a, in a way that that works and, and still keeps their heat. And you could probably like definitely trace the lineage from these guys to Killer Carl Cox, to Dick Murdoch, to Terry Funk, as far as incorporating those kind of spots into their matches in a in a way that works. The the Gaga, as it were. The Gaga. Yeah. 17 year age difference. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Doc was born in 1916. And Mike was born in 1933. Doc was uh, had a background in bodybuilding before going into wrestling. He served as a model for the Seabees during World War II. In the meantime, his kid brother, Mike, played football in high school in Bayonne. That's interesting. Their father was from Ireland and their mother from Czechoslovakia. Wow. Interesting, too. I think we talked about occurrences like this at least twice in the last in as many months mike was i think born george gallagher and didn't start using the name mike until a ring announcer like accidentally announced him as mike gallagher and you know like ron Starr did he liked how it sounded and, and went with it and i thought that was a, interesting that we seems like we talk about that almost every month now that happens yeah and, and <laughs> in this territory this time he's known as mike liberace gallagher uh but huh. this was a time doc doc was he wasn't quite retired yet, but he was on the cusp. And I think because of that, they decided to go their separate ways. And Mike, in particular, since he was uh, much younger than his older brother, still had some years left. So he ended up going to a few places that he that they had not been to before as a team. Um, but they're probably best known in the uh, Buffalo, Rochester, Cleveland area. Uh, they worked for Pedro Martinez in what was said to have been the strongest period of arena attendance uh, in that area. And they were probably in, in numerous main events. But they first teamed up in the Pacific Northwest in October 1951. As you mentioned, they were known as Doc and George back then. Um, it's uh yeah. they're they're after wrestling life is pretty it's in, it's some interesting uh, parts to it too like after after wrestling doc i think was like uh like worked at like a gym stuff he's a trainer sort of uh, gym stuff lived to be like 90 i think uh mike went into doing like restaurant franchising like shaky's pizza also via bobby davis got into like wendy's franchising mm-hmm. um served as president of a summer stock theater in North Carolina. Now, this is really interesting, too. Um, for a very brief time in the early 70s, along with George Becker and Tony Olivas, Elephant Boy, attempted to run opposition against Crockett. I think yep. we touched on Elephant Boy's involvement in that a few months back. Um, and Mike, I think Mike died really young, like 56, I think, of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh, goodness. But, yeah, there, yeah. There, there were a lot of people that tried to run opposition in, in the Carolinas. The outlaw promotion seemed to be much more prevalent in the South, in the Carolinas, in Alabama, and Mississippi mm. in particular. But I do, as I'm reading a profile on the Gallaghers from SteelBeltWrestling.com, I find that I have to make a minor correction to something I said earlier, because it appears that Mike Gallagher had had wrestled for McGurk before because there is mention of a match on June 8th, 1954 in Little Rock where he wrestled against Bob Clay. And, uh, you know, Little Rock was definitely a McGurk town in the 60s. I can't imagine it would have been part of a different territory in the mid 50s. And of course, Bob Clay was a local promoter for Leroy for many, many years. And I think Leroy actually trained him as well. So Mike apparently did wrestle for McGurk previously, but it had been back in 1954. Oh, wow. Interesting. There's a really cool uh, little tidbit on that Steel Belt Belt Wrestling 
post where they talk about an angle uh, upstate New York with uh, Ilya DiPaolo, the, the hero of upstate New York. Um, and uh, they, uh, Mike was in street clothes and his brother, uh, you know, was involved in the match with the Pauls. So they set up a rematch the following week uh, with Mike, you know, wrestling and Doc barred from ringside. But Doc comes up with this idea of <laughs> standing outside the dressing room and using a flashlight to send signals to his brother. So Ilio DiPaolo goes, he sees a flashlight and asks the referee, uh, referee's name, Piney Johnson, which is a fantastic name, asked the referee, uh, Piney Johnson, to, to, to make this stop, stop doing these signals with the flashlight. So as Ilio DiPaolo standing there at the ropes talking with Johnson, Gallagher hits him from behind, rolls him up, and just pins him. <laughs> the fans gonna go crazy. Uh, you know, Johnson said the pin was legal and ruled Gallagher the window winner. Uh, and Apollo protested, but to no avail. To no avail. Uh, the no flashlight avail. did him in. We've got. <laughs> yeah. we're, I'm gonna put up a picture from a program in Buffalo. This was from November seventh, nineteen fifty eight. The uh, Gallagher's are profiled in this uh, program. They also are scheduled for a match against Pat Flanagan and Tony Marino. Tony Marino just recently passed away. Uh, also, interestingly enough, his uh, Tony Marino's granddaughter is a current active professional wrestler by the name of Lady Frost. Did not know that. And I think wow. she just recently appeared on the NWA, uh, huh. on NWA Power. Uh, and she, I, uh, I met her before she uh, and her husband came to a show uh, I was at in Georgia uh, over a year ago. Uh, they had moved down here. They ended up moving back up north. Um, but uh, Lady Frost posted something on Twitter that she had hoped that her grandfather would have been able to still be around to see her when she made her, you know, quote unquote, uh, major promotion debut. Uh, hmm. Unfortunately, he missed it by, I guess, just a few weeks uh, because he died fairly recently. And Lady Frost uh, just debuted for NW Power. So but it's great to see. uh Lady Frost and so many other women wrestlers getting so many more opportunities nowadays than how the women were used back then. But yes, oh, yeah. the Gallagher's against Tony Marino and Pat Flanagan. And there's a profile in this program. Uh, Doc is referred to as Madman and Mike <laughs> is referred to as Pretty Boy. Pretty Boy. And scribes call the Gallagher's <laughs> fabulous, fantastic, fearless, and frightening. They call themselves powerful polished, poised, and proud. Wrestling fans call them vain, vicious, violent, and much to their chagrin, must admit they are also victorious. Waka, waka, waka. Very well-written program here. Yeah, they love their alliteration. In yes, and there's a great picture um, on the... I, I'm not sure if it's the cover of the back page. It looks like it's the back page yeah, the back of page. the program of the Gallagher's making the, uh, the famed double bicep pose. Yeah. Uh, one standing uh, tall and the other sort of uh, kneeling down. Uh, if you want to see the Gallagher's in action, we've got a link to a match on YouTube uh, with uh, from Buffalo uh, against the team of Bobo Brazil and Billy Red Lions. Yeah, I think that's probably 6061. Not exactly sure on the date, though. And we also, I also found right before we went on the air... I was just goofing around like I do right before we go on breaking the air. news right before we went on the air. <laughs> I breaking news. I, I, I found a match that is the same uh, participants as the match on this program. Uh, Tony Marino 
uh, and Irish, the Fighting Irishman, Pat Flanagan versus the Gallagher from Buffalo. And we'll post a link to that, too. I'm not sure if it's the same match, but it's the same four guys. That'd be great if it was the same match. But let's take a look at who else is on this card. This was, as I mentioned, November 7th, 1958. The opening bout is Fred Atkins versus Maurice Lapointe. Then we have the aforementioned tag team match. Then it's Baron Gatoni versus Don Arnold. And then a special feature, the little people, Little Beaver and Tiny Tim versus Irish Jackie and Fuzzy Cupid. And the main event is Ilio DiPaolo versus the Masked Marvel. John, Mm. do you know who the Masked Marvel was here? I do not. Do you? Okay. I don't. Huh. I just asked, a, I literally, I was asking that, hoping you would know it. We, yeah, well, no. Just so our listeners know, we usually work from an outline, but sometimes <laughs> we go off the cuff. And this was just me saying, I don't know who the Mass Marvel is, but John knows everything. Right, huh? So I'll ask him. And yeah, sure enough, John makes me look foolish by not knowing. Uh, no, I'm not. I don't know. I'm stumped. I don't. There I were a few uh, Mass Marvels over yeah. the years. But uh, yes, so Art Nielsen, Mike Gallagher, and the third wrestler not often associated with the McGurk territory, but who came here in the second quarter of 1964 was Bobby Hercules Graham. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned, uh, so John is my YouTube guy. He is the (laughs) one who finds all of these matches on YouTube. And you mentioned that you could not find video footage of this guy because he has, he used so many different gimmick names over the years, but they all sounded similar to more other more popular wrestlers. Yeah, he's a, it's a it's like a case study in 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 search difficulty because of all these names yeah, like Bobby is, Graham this wrestling. This is a problem I encounter when looking up newspapers. Um because you know wrestlers with very common names think Terry Taylor or Mike Davis, mm, you're going to yeah. get a lot of false positives or if they share a name with a much more famous person for example, Jerry Brown and Joe McCarthy, you, of course, find a lot of uh, false hits when yeah, trying to search for them. Yeah. And this guy, if you go through like his aliases, you got Bobby Graham, you know, that's going to obviously give you trouble. Uh, Pat Kennedy and Bob Baker. I mean, those are very, very, very common names. Bob the Bruiser is going to you get a lot of bruiser stuff. And they have like the mass stuff like Black Terror, Mass Marauder, Goliath. Hercules, Hercules Graham, the mighty Hercules, all, all trouble, nothing but trouble there. Um, even the searching narrowed down like the time frame when he wrestled as Hercules is tricky because there were a ton of Hercules movies. The Hercules cartoon on was on TV. Like the early sixties was just like a huge time for the, uh, what is this? genre? like the, the sword and sandal genre. Uh, if that's what it is, it's like it, it's, Hercules is everywhere. Um, but you know, by by searching for him by his his his, his real name, Larry Hewlin, we're actually able to find out uh, more about him. You can find some of his high school wrestling results and a bunch of results for him when he worked under his real name for uh, Crockett and Gulf Coast in the early '60s. Uh, he was from North Carolina, so maybe he's using his real name there. Yeah, we uh, also we also find some other things about him after oh, his yeah. wrestling career that we'll get to later. But you had mentioned he worked as Bob the Bruiser, uh, and this was in Australia. He was Bob the Bruiser Baker. Uh, and if you want a little more info on on that character, we've got a link to a message forum where they they talk about his run there in Australia. There's also. Um, Picture of him in a Lake Charles program from July 31st, 1963. Uh, he is in Lake Charles, Louisiana. 
on a card with a main event of Ricky Starr versus Bull Montana. Also featured Great Dane versus Ciclon Negro. Uh, the second match was Bobby Graham versus Nick Londis. And the opening match was El Enfermero versus Jerry London. Um, there's also, uh, we're going to put a picture from a magazine article. This was Wrestling Review. This was uh, the June 1964 issue of Wrestling Review. And one of the big articles, in fact, on the cover, talks about the night Mighty Hercules was unmasked. There's an article about his match with Eddie Graham, uh, and he lost his match, mask, but after the match and after being unmasked, he attacks Eddie Graham afterwards oh, yeah. because he's a sneaky heel. Hiding in the back in the in the in the in the locker room, covering his face with an issue of a back issue of Wrestling Review magazine. Yes, when the when the photographer walks, <laughs> when the photographer for Wrestling Review walks in, Graham just happened to be reading a copy of that very same magazine and oh, used indeed. it to cover his face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, what a kowinky dink. But let's talk about October fourth, nineteen sixty seven. High Point, North Carolina, and this is from the High Point Enterprise. The headline, Hercules, not happy in Huskow. The article discusses that uh, Hercules did not want to go to jail Monday, and Tuesday in jail, he continued to show his displeasure by ripping out a cell plumbing facility and throwing it across the floor. Hercules is known to deputies as 28-year-old Larry W. Hulin, a 250-pound professional wrestler, whom deputies, with some difficulty, arrested (laughs) Monday night on a warrant signed by his wife and charging him with assault on a female. So, yes, he was in jail and decided to express his displeasure by ripping out the turlet and throwing it across the cell. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not all. Oh, that's not all. A couple um, years later, John, you'll, I'll let you talk about this one. But this was May 1969, also in the High Point Enterprise in High Point, North Carolina. Oh, yeah. This, uh, this was Ashboro Man held in death. Uh, a 250-pound former professional wrestler of North Ashboro was arrested in High Point early this morning and charged with murder in the death of Reed Harden, uh, Reed Harden Whittington. 48, late Saturday night. Being held in Randolph County Jail today without privilege of bond is 30-year-old Larry Hewlin of 2501 North Fayetteville Street, Ashboro, who was arrested at about 2.30 a.m. Nothing good happens at 2.30 a.m. Today at a residence at 1100 Prospect Street, High Point. Hewlin was arrested by Randolph deputies assisted by members of the High Point Police Department. Randolph deputies. So Whittington was shot as he... uh... Stood in the doorway of his home. So he was shot. And I guess eventually he was, Hulin was convicted. Right, John? Convicted. And also, from my research, uh, convicted of involuntary manslaughter and attempted to escape prison at some point during his sentence. And this was, 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 time was added to his sentence because of that. So did he try and hide in a in a commode and throw himself <laughs> out, out the window to freedom? I didn't get I any word on that. But I mean, after after wrestling... And prison. Hewlin, Hewlin became an evangelist. Uh, <laughs> put down the guns, picked up the Bible, you know, whatever works. Like, usually when guys like in the late ex wrestlers turn to, you know, religious stuff later, it's usually just like, okay, it's, it's, that's your thing. You do it. But, but in this case, I'm like, all oh, go for it. Like, this is whatever. 
whatever replaces like the guns and the yeah can't, the, can't the be worse than uh, the path you were on no i know no, we usually absolutely. like to focus on the lighter side or you know the happy side but unfortunately yeah. these things come up and so larry hewlin after his in-ring career was over had some adventures with the law but if it led to him finding god and moving on then good for him good for him is what exactly. I say. yeah uh we also in in also looking at the second quarter of 1964 uh, two of the biggest feuds were Irish Mike Clancy versus Terry Garvin and Danny Hodge versus Pat Patterson. If you go to our blog, chartingtheterritories.com, we take an in-depth look at the feud between Clancy and Garvin, breaking it down by a town-by-town basis. And we also list the advertised lineups for all known house shows in the territory. And for this uh, 13-week period in 1964, I've got 126 shows in my records. And if you're wondering, Al, how do you get all of these house shows? How come your records are more extensive than those on Wrestling Data or Cage Match or in the various results books I've purchased? Well, there's a new short form podcast that I'm going to put out on a regular basis uh, where that is going to be one of the topics we discuss. The podcast is entitled Stats 101. And in the first episode, which came out earlier this month, I discussed my trip to Dothan, Alabama, why I went there what I was looking for, and what I found. Um, so I got some clippings from Dothan for a several-year period. I also found some clippings from 1967, John. And aside from the regular Gulf Coast wrestlers who you always see when you look at Gulf Coast results, there was a youngster by the name of Ronnie Carson hmm. who was teaming up with Don Carson. And John, do you know who Ronnie Carson was? Ronnie Carson, that was, uh, that was a young, young, uh, young Captain Redneck Dick Murdoch. Yes! Bing. John for the win. And that is not in our outline. That was a uh, spur of the moment. John got it right. Dick Murdoch was early in his career wrestling as Ronnie Carson. It also featured a youngster named Wonder Boy, Les Thatcher. Oh. Uh, and Les mentioned uh, when I posted this on Twitter, he mentioned that uh, this was their attempt to uh, do something similar to Bobby Shane. Very early in Shane's career, he was actually a uh, position as a baby face and he was young he was like 17 18 19 years old yeah. uh, and so gulf coast in their attempt to copy this uh young teen idol baby face brought in a then 26 year old les thatcher <laughs> to portray the teen wonder boy hey. les thatcher oh. <laughs> but other wrestlers uh in 1967 uh are Les's wrestling cousins, Roger Kirby and Dennis Hall, and the wrestler who has the honor of having my favorite nickname in wrestling. John, who is it? After scrutinizing your post, I think that the answer is Jack the Neck Vansky. You have to say the neck with a much deeper voice. It's Jack the Neck, the neck. Vansky. <laughs> well, not deeper, but just, you know, put some, put some, put some emphasis on it. Jack yes, the, yes. Neck. the Neck Vansky. 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 Best Vansky. nickname in wrestling ever. I have I I I just read a couple days ago uh, a funny story about Vansky. Uh, it's really quick. I'm gonna tell it. Uh, he's working for Crockett. One night the guys are in the locker room and they're all talking about how when they get home from the matches really late they make their wives get out of bed, fix them dinner, and of course as each wrestler's story, you know about how you know he roused his wife to you know perform her her, her wifely duties in the kitchen. They each get a little a little bolder and probably further straight further from the truth. So the next day, Vansky shows up at Crockett's office with an enormous, like, shiner, black eye, you know? Um, so apparently Vansky took some of these stories to heart when he got home, woke his wife up, 
telling her to you know fix me something to eat after the matches. After which she hit him in the head with the telephone and went back to sleep. So goodness, yeah, that'll learn you. Yeah, that's like those stories of a uh, sugar bear of Kamala's wife. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> when he won the big battle royal, battle royal. And, and came home and she wanted it, all the money and he didn't have it. Who knows uh, what she did. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, that wraps up our coverage of 1964. We're also looking at the second quarter of 1973 on the blog. As I mentioned, Watts leaves going to Georgia and ending up as the booker. And I believe he also gets a small piece of ownership in the territory uh, as uh, part of his remuneration. Um, What's interesting is that looking at the roster here in early 1973, there are three wrestlers that were in Georgia at the time of the split that all stayed with Gunkel, that that basically, you know, jumped to uh, the new outlaw promotion. And that is Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown uh, and Skandor Akbar. And, you know, I really don't know what's going on at the time. I know in the case of Roberts and Brown, they did not stay long. I think they stayed less than a month with Gunkel and then left and came here. I think Akbar stayed through January before coming back. I wonder how easy it was for them you know, to come back uh, once you, you know, decide to go outlaw, so to speak, you know, is there going to be some hesitation on the part of the NWA promoters on bringing them back? And obviously, Roberts and Brown and Akbar had all been here before. Akbar had been here many times over the years. Yeah. So perhaps perhaps the reason they came here when they first left Gunkel was because this was their safe place. This was the place they were most, you know, going to be welcomed. Because Roberts and Brown actually don't stay very long. They end up going back up to Canada. So perhaps they just, once they realize, okay, I made a mistake jumping to the outlaw. I need to go back somewhere. So let me call Leroy quick, see if he can use us. And then we'll work on finding a more permanent home. So, you know, these are sort of the behind the scenes politics that you wonder if, uh, the wrestlers, because, you know, we hear the wrestlers that stayed with Gunkel, you know, past the first couple of months that were threatened with blackball, with being blackballed. There are stories of them being pulled over on the way to shows. Uh, there's all sorts of, you know, of, of perhaps you know, allegedly having, quote unquote, hits put out on them uh, by the establishment. You don't really know what goes on, but Roberts and Brown leave and that leaves an opening for a new uh, main event level heel tag team. And moved up into that spot is Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler. Now, Eddie Sullivan is one of the subjects of the second edition of Wrestling History Mysteries, my other short-form podcast, which came out earlier this month. Basically, in the early 70s, there were three, at least three, wrestlers who had used the ring name Eddie Sullivan at some point in their careers. And so this is me using... uh, research knowledge and, and and facts to try and chart all three Eddie Sullivans and determine their whereabouts throughout 1973. Because believe it or not, Wrestling Data has this Eddie Sullivan wrong. They say it is uh, Tito Montez, mm. but it can't be. And if you listen to the podcast, Wrestling History Mysteries, which is available on the Charting the Territories podcast feed, you will learn exactly why I say it can't be Tito Montez. We also look at the rest of the roster on our blog, and what's really interesting is without Watts, the talent level clearly takes a hit. There are two newcomers that come in and work prelims that I literally 
have never heard of before. And there is no other information on them wrestling anywhere else except for each of them had like a six week stint in prelims for McGurk. And that is Leo Labello and Duke Bobo. I honestly, I have no idea who either of them are. It's always possible they were uh, better known by another name. And this was just them getting their start earlier in their career. But as of right now, the collective wisdom of wrestling history doesn't know who they are. One newcomer who we do know quite a bit about was a rookie by the name of Ali Vaziri, who, of course, was Koshiro Vaziri, who later became the Iron Sheik. Other newcomers or returnees included Tarzan Baxter, Gypsy Joe Rosario, and Butcher Brannigan. Now, Tarzan Baxter, better known as Leon Baxter, passed away, I believe it was earlier this year, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, earlier this year, yeah. And he is, very, best, very he is best linked to the uh, Gulf Coast territory, but he had a couple of big runs here. He was a regular foe of Danny Hodge. Uh, when Hodge was uh, the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion in the late 60s. And here he comes in and pretty much resumes that feud. But in Gulf Coast, he was often under a mask as the wrestling pro. Yeah, yeah. And there's a great angle you were talking about um, that uh, is talked about on the Elite Pro Wrestling Training website, which is an angle between Baxter and Ken Mantell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, uh, it's funny. I was doing a little, little deeper look uh, using the old uh, internet wayback machine, and uh, the, a lot of the information on that is taken from Wrestling Pro's now defunct website. So if you can find a lot of other stuff about him there, also. Uh, but this one angle, I, I love this angle. It's like, uh, and it's explained by Cowboy Bob Kelly. Uh, it was one of the all-time top baby faces from the Gulf Coast who I think was booking at the time. And he explained it. So it's cool to hear the guy who booked it explain it. Uh, to try to summarize it quickly, I think this is probably 74, 75. Uh, Wrestling Pro challenges then junior heavyweight champion Ken Mantell. But Wrestling Pro weighs too much. Now he says he'll get to the correct weight, puts his mask and gets the belt. So the night of the match, Bob Kelly brings a scale to the ring. And they weigh him. He makes weight. So they have the match, and it has a, a weird disputed finish with one referee gets knocked out, another comes in. Uh, Wrestling Pro has Mantel pinned, but the first ref didn't see it. Uh, and then Mantel is on top and gets the pin when the second ref comes in, so it's a big disputed finish. Bob Kelly comes out, says he saw what happened, and that Wrestling Pro is the new winner as far as he's concerned. He won for, fair and square. He's the new junior heavyweight champion. But Mantel takes off with the belt. So then Kelly gets a message from NWA president... Sam Muchnick, which they air on TV, telling him to stop calling Wrestling Pro the champ. Kelly responds by getting a belt made for Wrestling Pro and saying that the only way to stop Pro from being called champion was for Mantell to come back to mobile and defend the belt. Uh, and then Muchnick responds by sending in troubleshooters you know, to defeat the Pro, including Luthez. Uh, but none of the troubleshooters can get the job done. And Muchnick sends a message that, you know, hey, the, the Pro is a better man than I, than I, than I had thought. Uh, and that he would send Mantel back to Mobile to defend the belt. And, of course, they're able to do the troubleshooter angle all across the territory, pack houses everywhere. And then when Mantel finally comes back, according to Kelly, it's a standing room only, sold out. Um, I love this sort of angle, especially with with, with Muchnik being involved. And, 
even now reading about it, there's part of me thinking that, oh, well, maybe some of it was Muchnik being legitimately upset about, you know, someone else claiming title ownership. And maybe the angle was, you know, just a tiny bit based in some some reality because there are uh... times when that actually happened. Um, but, you know, they got me. They got me here. Albi. I'm hooked. I'm well, hooked again, who, you know. If that's what you want to believe, John, nothing I can say would change your mind. Yes. yes. So that's the great thing about pro wrestling is there's so always hints me, of truth it. in things. <laughs> uh, speaking of Gulf Coast, we've got a YouTube match of the wrestling pro versus Rip Tyler, yeah. who we just talked about uh, when he was here with Eddie Sullivan. And this was from 1977. So you can check that out on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com where we have links to all these YouTube videos. Um Next up, Gypsy Joe Rosario. Uh, his initial claim to fame was being a Pfeffer guy, and oh, his yeah. uh, he was a knockoff. His ring name was Bruno San Martino. S A N M A R T I N O. But he was one of several Gypsy Joes over the oh, yeah. years. Uh, <laughs> there's a link to a post on the Claw Masters archives, which looks at four different wrestlers who use the name Gypsy Joe. Not only yeah. did he share the same name with a few wrestlers, he looked a lot like a couple of wrestlers as well. So John, tell us about Joe, Joe and Rocky. <laughs> there. I remember him mostly as uh Gypsy Joe Rosario, the one we're talking about here, that Gypsy Joe as Pancho, Pancho rather Pancho Valdez in the WWF, WWWF actually. Um, and I often confused him with Joe Turco. Uh, they look a lot alike. A lot alike. Um, and also, with the exception of the chest tattoo that uh, Rosario yeah. slash Valdez yeah. had. And Rocky Tamayo. The photo I, I, I have is for reference there. It doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really, you know. But from a distance, like grainy old 10th generation videotape, black long tights, you know, you, you could maybe see where I... Uh, you know, got confused here, but, 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 but Pancho Valdez and Joe Turco look, do look very similar. And to, to further complicate things out, there's also a Pancho Valdez in the AWA during the seventies, who was a totally different guy. Uh, but he looked like Rocky Tamayo. So sort of brings it full circle there. Yeah. And, and Gypsy Joe Rosario also worked as Pancho Rosario on some yep. occasion, but uh, an interesting fact, he was probably the first wrestler to be named the undertaker. Uh, oh, yeah. There are numerous references to him having the nickname, the Cuban undertaker. Huh. So long before Mark Callis and long before uh, double trouble, uh, the Puccio brothers from the <laughs> Northeastern Indies who uh, were the undertakers and then uh, got a settlement uh, when they sued the WWF for creating The Undertaker and ended up getting uh, house show bookings out of the deal. Um, but yes, uh, but Gypsy Joe Rosario is the first, the Cuban Undertaker. Uh, that's a cool name. Yeah. So is Butcher Brannigan, John. That's a great <laughs> yes. name, but that's not the name he, a, a lot of fans might not know him best as. So John, oh. who... Who was Butcher Brannigan also known as? I know knew him. I knew him as Big Joe Nova from, uh, again, WWWF TV. Uh, you know, and like a lot of other guys, you know, he was a guy who was a, a prelim guy, mainly in the Northeast, but was, was booked better, higher on the cards elsewhere in the country. 
uh, and the world. Worked Japan, UK, South Africa. Did really, really well in Australia. New Zealand also got like a nice little push uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, another guy from Jersey, just like the Gallagher's uh, from Cream Ridge, New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore there. Uh, there's a funny article uh, that we'll post a link to, uh, Slam Wrestling. Uh, and there's one of his, his, his regular opponents in Australia, Dominic Bianco, uh, tells the story. And apparently Butcher Brandigan had terrible, terrible eyesight and had to wear contacts. So these two are wrestling and in the middle of the match. Brandigan loses, loses the contact. So Bianco is forced to kill five minutes, five minutes plus outside the ring while Brand- Butcher Brandigan's pawing around the mat trying to find one of his contacts. So when he finally gets the contact in, Bianco just rolls in the ring and gets pinned by Brannigan for the finish. <laughs> I thought that was a hilarious story. Yeah, he, he then goes on right after that, talks about how one time they went fishing and uh, <laughs> Butcher couldn't catch anything. And uh, so Bianco looks over uh, the edge and he realizes that Butcher's line was above the water. It wasn't even yeah. in the water. <laughs> and he's sitting there thinking he was fishing and was upset he couldn't catch anything. You're like, this is the um, shit. He, he apparently uh, had some success in Australia. Yeah, uh, I don't know. He did. Let's not say it, it, but he did have some su- success. So much so that I believe there was a racing greyhound <laughs> yes. named after him. Now, was that in Australia or is that I don't? Do they yes. have greyhounds? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the greyhound so, yeah. reporter. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how big he was. Um, and he had a very interesting post wrestling career. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was he he was an instructor uh, for the uh, New Jersey Department of Corrections. He taught arts and crafts. Yeah. Uh, at prison. Yeah. It's so funny. Like he, you know, he, and he was there. He, he just was, he randomly answered a one ad in the paper. It's like, oh, this sounds fun <laughs> if, as, a, you know, a painting instructor. And he ended up working there for like 20 something years. And it's funny. And the, there's an interview. We could post a link to that, too, uh, with him from like a local paper. Uh, and he's quoted, there's a quote saying, I like this better than working in the school system. The guys give you more respect here. (laughs) 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 We also have a picture, uh, from an article where I guess they, uh, refinished some chairs for the school district in Linden, New Jersey. So yeah, again, nice to see him have a normal career post wrestling and, and, you know, somewhat a rewarding and productive career. And, and you yes. know, again, well, you know, whatever your feeling is about, uh, you know, the corrections, uh, the institution of corrections here in the U S again, if we are teaching uh, people to trade uh, nothing wrong with that. Nope. And we've got footage of him of butcher Brannigan versus Steve Kern yeah. from Florida in 1980. So that's, that's towards the end of Brannigan's career, right? Yep. 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 Yeah. So, but we can check that out. I mean, a lot of times we talk about all these wrestlers and so many of our listeners, I'm sure have heard of them and maybe seen pictures, but to actually see footage of the Gallagher brothers, for example, is something a lot of people might not have done. So we're going to put all these YouTube links up on our blog, on our podcast companion piece. Uh, Also on the blog, uh, when we're talking about 1973 with Watts gone, uh, Grizzly Smith sort of became the de facto top babyface. And, uh, you know, there are times when Grizzly is the top babyface in the lower half of the territory in Louisiana. Uh, but there and there are, and at the same time, Watts is sort of the king of the northern part of the territory. But with Watts gone, 
the feud between Grizzly Smith and the Spoiler in 1973 hit all of the major towns. So you can look at that on our blog and see how the feud progressed uh, from town to town. And of course, speaking of Grizzly Smith, uh, just a few weeks ago, Dark Side of the Ring aired their episode on Grizz and doing a podcast about pro wrestling, John, it's sort of tricky to figure out what to do about Grizzly Smith, Bob Sweetan, Buck Zumhoff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, for the most part, I really don't dwell on them, but they are a major part of the territory for much of the time we're talking about. And uh, you, I'm going to uh, just matter of factly list, you know, what they're doing, what, you know, who they're feuding with or where they're at. And I'm not going to dwell on it. I think most of our listeners know the backgrounds of, of those wrestlers and in particular, um, if we can have a funny story about Larry Hewlin throwing a toilet in jail, that's funny, but <laughs> nothing about Grizzly Smith's life uh, outside of wrestling was funny in any way, shape or form. So the less said about it, the better. Yes. But he was agreed. the booker. For the Louisiana towns. And as we mentioned, there were times when Watts was the booker for the northern part of the territory. But there's another part of the territory at this time, which are several towns in Mississippi. And these towns were promoted by George Culkin, who wrestled for many years as George Curtis. George's son, Gil, started working for him first as a ring announcer in the early 70s, but over the next few years took on more and more responsibilities. Uh, and, you know, towards the end, towards the, in the Mid-South days, George and Gill were a were co-promoters. They were a father and son promotion team. But Gill came out with a book last year documenting his life and his experiences in pro wrestling called The Mississippi Wrestling Territory, The Untold Story. I recently had the opportunity to interview him. I've actually talked with him a few times before. Uh, some of the pictures in that book actually came from me on one of my travel excursions when I was in Jackson, Mississippi. Hmm. But we're going to interview, we're sorry, we're going to air this interview in three parts. This first part, really, there's not, there's not much to it. We're just going to talk about the towns that George Culkin ran for Leroy in the early 70s and, and how those towns uh, evolved and changed over a few years. So let's, uh, let's roll that beautiful bean footage right now. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about here with Gil Culkin is just going through some of the towns that your father ran going back to the early 1970s when uh, your father, George Culkin, was the local promoter for Leroy McGurk, and he promoted events in Mississippi. And at first, uh, around 1971 and 1972, I think I've got the towns you ran. You ran Greenville on Thursday nights, Greenwood on Saturdays, and then you usually ran Jackson on Wednesdays, but some weeks you would run Vicksburg instead of Jackson. Does that sound about right? Yes. Yes. Okay, so... Uh, did you... Did you mention Natchez? Um, Natchez not yet. I, I think that didn't oh, okay. start until 1974, according to my records. Although, if you recall it earlier than that, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, oh, and, uh, no. I, okay. You're, you're probably right on that if you've done all your research. Well, I'm you know. Remember, yeah. yeah, the thing is. Changes. Yeah, just because. Obviously, if there's an ad in the Natchez newspaper, then we know there was a show, but there might have been times when. You were running shows there and weren't advertising in the paper, so it doesn't necessarily mean you weren't. 
Um, but we can figure that all out. And one of the questions I had was who determined how many nights per week uh, there would be shows in Mississippi? Did Leroy tell George, I can give you three nights a week, four nights a week? Or did George say, hey, we've got a fourth town. Leroy, can you send us talent for that extra night? Uh, I guess it went sort of both ways. Uh, of course, Leroy had the booking office. We were booking the talent through him. And so he pretty much laid things out, you know, when the talent was available. But but we would at times, or my father would, you know, just say if we wanted to run a spot show somewhere or a different town, you know, we would give it him and see if he could supply the talent. And, and he usually worked with us like that at the, in the beginning. Right. Okay, so so it was a, a, a group effort, so to speak. Now, um, as you mentioned, Natchez was a, another town you added, and you ran it on Fridays. And there were also some times where Vicksburg would run on its own on Fridays. You'd have a show in Jackson on Wednesdays and in Vicksburg on Fridays. But then Natchez became the regular Friday town. So at this point, you have four weekly towns. You've got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, plus the occasional spot town. So that's that's great for you because uh, your father owned his own ring, correct? Right. Uh-huh. So, yeah, the, the yeah, more but- the more use you can get out of that, the better. We started out with just one ring, and we just hobbled from town to town. But later on, as things changed and grew, we added some more rings to it. But uh, yeah, Natchez, I believe, was pretty much a spot show to start with once in a while, and then we worked it into a regular town on Fridays. And that's great. So at this point, Leroy is running at least three shows per night during the week. Uh, he usually has is running somewhere in the northern part, Oklahoma, Little Rock, parts of uh, Missouri or Wichita Falls. He's got almost every night a show in Louisiana somewhere and several nights a week, at least four nights a week, a, a show in Mississippi. So he's got a lot of wrestlers coming in. Um, but in 1976, I think Greenville stopped running. Do you know what happened with that? Uh, I think it was more that Leroy was expanding a little bit and running more towns, like you had mentioned, in Louisiana and different states. And pretty much they said he, he just didn't have the talent, you know, to to work all of our shows all the time like we had been. And we just sort of laid off for Greenville for a while and started, but we were still running Greenwood, if I recall. Right. And uh, my father at some point had bought up some land in the building that we call the Sportatorium where we're running our matches in Greenwood. So, uh, yeah, Greenville stopped being uh, every week town. And Greenwood and Greenville aren't that far apart, correct? No, they're only about 80-some-odd miles apart. So did you have— both really did, good towns. Yeah, did you have fans going to both of the towns every week? Oh, yeah. Okay. We, we would have fans from, just say, from Jackson or Vicksburg that would just about travel to all of our shows. And some of the same faces you see at, at most of your matches, they, they would travel quite a bit for wrestling. Yeah, okay. Well, that's great. So you've got, you have things rocking and rolling, but like we said, at some point, Greenville 
stops running. Natchez also stopped running. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in my research is that uh, Leroy and perhaps at, at this point, Bill had a lot of influence as part owner and booker. They put more wrestlers on each show. And whereas they were running three towns a night, in about 1976 uh, and into 1977, it looks like they're down to two towns a night. They still have the same amount of wrestlers, maybe a little bit less, but they're putting more wrestlers on each show. And as you mentioned, this gives less opportunities for your father to make money. And one of the interesting things you mentioned in your book was that you still have to pay uh, a flat fee as your share of the television production and distribution costs, correct? Right. We were paying for the television in each show and in each uh, market. And for a while, when, uh, since we were running just North Mississippi and pretty much Central, we just had the uh, Greenville Greenwood Station and the Jackson Station pretty much covered the towns that we were running. Okay. But yeah, it was. Uh, you still had TV every week, right? So you were pay you're paying a a flat fee every week or every month, and you used to be able to run three or four house shows every week to make money. And now all of a sudden you're down to two a week. You just have Greenwood and you have Jackson. Right, right. And and, and at the same yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Gil. I was just going to say, you're right, the TV expense didn't change. So there you go. And in future episodes of this podcast, we'll have more from Gil Culkin. And as I said, it's really important to me to get every side of the story when when trying to figure out some of the more you know interesting aspects of wrestling history of course yeah. this territory we know there was a major split between Leroy McGurk and Bill Watts in 1979 and the Culkins uh, were a part of that actually even before that split the Culkins split from McGurk slash Watts in 1977 and started their own territory uh which, of course, is the one of the main focuses of Gill's book, The Mississippi Wrestling Territory, The Untold Story. So now we're going to have a little more uh, input from the Culkin side of things. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we also have a little more detail from the McGurk camp. As Mike McGurk uh, appeared on Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw, a YouTube uh, series uh, featuring Gerald Briscoe, and JBL, John Bradshaw Layfield. Um, I know there's a shoot interview out there many, many years ago that Mike had done. But aside from that, her her sort of going on the record to discuss uh, wrestling and her father, uh, those instances are few and far between. Yeah. But this is a great two-hour conversation with Gerald Briscoe, JBL. Although I got to say, JBL, his overall screen time or his overall talking time is about two minutes out of this two yeah. hours. It is like, hey, just Mike and Jerry uh, telling tales. But yeah. uh, it's about two hours long. And the three most interesting takeaways that I got from it was one um, confirmation and also a little more detail about the childhood accident that cost Leroy uh, sight in one eye. And in fact, according to his daughter, uh, not just losing sight, but losing the eye altogether. Yeah. And this 
understand that Leroy McGurk was a uh, collegiate wrestler and a, you know, junior heavyweight champion for a couple of decades in the National Wrestling Association. And he did all this, not just being blind in one eye, but with only one functioning eye with only one eye. Uh, we, I think everyone knows about the automobile accident that, you know, cost him uh, full use of his sight that led to him retiring. But a lot of people didn't know that he already had had this accident. And it was a swimming accident that happened, I guess, above the pool. There were some sort of uh, gym type equipment. Think of monkey bars or uh, ropes or rings. And yeah. I guess he said another child was was on the rings going across the pool and sort of freaked out and started kicking his uh, legs about and ended up hitting Leroy while Leroy yeah. was swimming. Yeah. I mean, like back then, there was really not a lot of options. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just was... like in the old days, you know, a horse breaks its leg. There's, you know, there's nothing you can do. You can shoot it. Yeah. But in this yeah. case, they couldn't save the eye. So uh, according to uh, Leroy's daughter, Michael McGurk, they removed the eye. The other thing was hearing her talk about all the many hats that uh, Skandor Akbar wore uh, in that time yeah. period between 1979 and 1982, after the split from Watts, where Akbar was, um, for uh, some of the time, he was the booker. He was the lead hill manager, but he also wrestled, uh, if not full time, awfully close to full time, uh, usually two, three nights a week. He's wrestling on top of managing, you know, any main event level heel. And he's also just sort of the guy to talk to wrestlers, uh, you know, when, if they're having troubles, he's just sort of the calming force and the calming voice in the locker room. And the third takeaway was, uh, when Mike was talking about her time working as the ring crew, coordinating the ring crew for the WWF, at this point, the WWF, how, uh, there are, alleged attempts of sabotage on the part of local promoters. In one case, uh, perhaps paying off Frankie Kane to no-show with the ring. And at another time in Oklahoma City, perhaps paying someone to install a shoddy ring that they, you know, that might very well uh, malfunction in the middle of the show. And then there was Harley Race showing up with a weird liquid. (laughs) (laughs) Like that. It's like she was like it was clear, but it had a pink tin to it, tinge to it. I wasn't I wasn't sure what it was going to do. He said it would destroy the ring. <laughs> yeah. So, to... I mean, you know, there uh, everything you you have heard about how the you know local territories reacted to Vince's uh, expansion is probably true. And it's and it's probably even worse than than what you've heard. Oh, yeah. And probably even worse than what uh, we have heard from Mike McGurk on stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. <laughs> There's also Oni Wiki Wiki mention. Yes, <laughs> and, and that it that it stood for Speedy Quick Quick. Yes, and he was like a he was an office guy. He would bicycle. Yeah. He was a, the, the tape bicycler. Yeah, he uh, and that was he, and he also promoted. He was the local promoter for many of the towns in Louisiana after they sort of m- merged the territories in 1970. Huh. Um, but he and Billy Golden were also operating in Louisiana as a kind of sort of separate but not totally separate territory from McGurk in 68 and early 69. Um, Another interesting thing that happens in 1973 is Dory Funk Jr. comes in and that wasn't unusual but what is unusual is these three title defenses were his final successful defenses of the title. He comes in for three nights. He wrestles Danny Hodge twice and the spoiler once. And the very next night, a Thursday, he goes to Kansas City, 
where he's scheduled to defend the title against Harley Race. And I think we all know how that went. That is the Uh night Harley won the World Heavyweight title. Now, that title switch in Kansas City is documented in the first 1973 Wrestling Almanac I put out a few months ago, uh, the 1973 Heart of America Wrestling Almanac. But if you want more about the Funks in particular, you can check out the newest Almanac, the 1973 Western States Sports Wrestling Almanac. I released it via Payhip. It's a downloadable PDF document, and you can download it for free or name your own price. Uh, We have listings for over 400 house shows. We look at the roster and we rank them by our exclusive spot rating metrics. So you can see who the main eventers were, who the upper mid-carters were, the mid-carters, the preliminary wrestlers. We have title histories, a map of the territory, uh, as I mentioned, listings for over 400 house shows and results from three key cities, El Paso, Lubbock, and Amarillo. Now, looking at the roster. Yeah. I uh, love this almanac. It's uh, amazing territory. It is. I mean, nothing against the heart of America, but Amarillo is just like super hot in 73, man. Like you look at these cards are so exciting. And I'm, I'm like, I'm talking on one hand from the, you know, the historical like nerdy perspective, like, oh, hell yeah. I want to see Chris Colt wrestle Stan Hansen in 1973, but also from like a fan perspective, just seeing these in the paper, uh, like some of the stipulation matches, the way return matches are booked. And there's so much that I would love to have seen, like the, the combination death matches where you have a best of three falls match where each fall has different rules. So cool. And like Dick Murdoch or Terry Funk in a match where like boxing gloves get thrown in and the match yep. must have, has to be won by a knockout or my favorite, the German blood match. And and so what is the German blood match, John? Oh, that's the specialty of kill Karl Krupp. Kill right, Karl but what, Krupp. what is the stipulation? It's so oh, stipulation it's a handkerchief, is, right? This is the handkerchief deal. The Winner is the first one to fill a handkerchief with his opponent's blood. <laughs> to well, fill or I guess soak, oh, completely uh, soak through might be a you know a more accurate term. Yeah, depending on. But yes, the German blood match. <laughs> oh God! Which was yeah. the specialty of uh, one of my one of my favorite looking you know the one of the best looking heel German heel oh, wrestlers yeah. of all time. He's got that monocle and the cape and that scowl and that, that almost cartoonish scowl, but yes. you can't really tell if he's laughing, you know, humorously or sinisterly. Uh, yeah, and that is no. Killer Karl Krupp. Yep. Born yep, yep, yep. in the Netherlands, George Momberg. In the Netherlands, when he's a child, uh, it is under full Nazi occupation. Yeah. Like put it to put it in perspective. Um, like he's born five years after Anne Frank. So that's gives you an idea of like how old he was. I think Germany invaded the Netherlands, I think two days after his sixth birthday. So young, young George Momberg probably, probably saw some, saw some shit going up. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's said in interviews that he goes, uh, he goes over the top with the accent uh, when he portrays Killer Carl Krupp in a way that, like I said, it's it's border. It's right on that border of menacing and comedic. And he said he went overboard on purpose, uh, you know, sort of making fun of it and almost, you know, giving it a Colonel Clink tint yeah. to it. You know, I wonder, given and again, we don't know what his actual experiences were growing up. You know, we understand uh, that the country was under occupation you know we don't know what he may have seen uh if if anything at all but i do wonder if 
you know, he ever really had difficulties later in life, you know, portraying this role, or if perhaps it was some form of catharsis yeah, and his way of coping. I, yeah, that's what I've always thought in my head. Like, oh, this is how he how he's dealing with this, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, it's it's yeah, you're talking about like the 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 pro, like the Colonel Clink on steroids sort of. Yeah, and it's like I I still find him even to this day like unnerving and terrifying to watch it's like, like the um uh that was the old silent film was it nosferatu oh yeah you yeah, know where the, it's just the, yeah that what that that the ghoul the, the ghoul yeah. just standing there it, it's sort of like that and like it's scary and funny but scary <laughs> yeah yeah and he would always like his promos he would always start them out really slowly and quietly but by the end of the interview the monocle would fall off and he'd be like a raging lunatic. The announcer would be covered in spit. Uh, and there's a promo he did where like uh, he's he, he's just he's describing how he's going to break every bone in his opponent's body. And he has like a bunch of chicken bones and he's just breaking these chicken bones as he's talking about breaking all his opponent's bones. And of course, you know, it's just like really just horrifying. Yeah, and his, his athletic career, when it was got off to a much more inauspicious start, he actually uh, had a background in amateur football and wrestling. Uh, he did, I'm not quite sure if it's amateur or semi-pro football in Canada for he a played, few years. I think one season, I think I was able to to find where he played with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, which was the same team that Angelo Mosca hmm. played for as a rookie in 1958. They weren't, I don't think they were teammates because that's what I've, found is momberg i got placed on waivers by like 1957 or so so they never teammates which would have been interesting yeah and and as you mentioned uh to me there's some question on when his wrestling career started because there was another wrestler uh named ludwig von krupp who seems to have used the name carl von krupp at some times and so uh those those matches are credited to George Momberg, but as best we can tell, he didn't start regularly wrestling regularly until 1966. Yeah. Um, he probably was wrestling before then for uh, the the Manitoba Boxing and Wrestling Club, I think was the name of it. Um, and again, that's sort of some sort of semi-pro type situation. Yeah. Um, but he started uh, using the name, uh, using his real name of George Momberg or also Dutch Momberg. Um, and you uh, you showed me a picture of him in 1957 from the yeah. Ottawa Citizen in Ottawa, Ontario. He, uh, I guess, was the runner up in the yeah. Canadian Amateur Heavyweight Tournament at St. Catharines. Yeah. Um, and he I mean, he just looks like a normal person. It's nothing like this, you, you look in this photo and we'll post this like he looks like a fan meeting a famous athlete almost. <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward, you know, 10 years later. And yeah, yeah. But even even before that, I found a really interesting clipping. So September 1968 in Montreal, George Momberg wrestling as himself uh, years before he became, you know, a fake German named Killer Carl Krupp wrestled against Waldo Von Erich. (laughs) (laughs) So these are just the types of connections that you find all the time in wrestling. You know, wrestlers, um, I think Jumbo Saruda's first house show match was against Stan Hansen. In 1973. And of course, you know, they ended up having, uh, I think they ended up being, uh, Hanson ended up being Saruta's most frequent opponent uh, of all time after that. And they're very, you know, his very first 
house show match. He had done one TV uh, the week before, the weekend before, but his first house show match was against Stan Hansen uh, in, I think, the late spring or summer of 1973. And Hansen had uh, turned pro earlier that year. I believe his first match was January 1st, 1973. So they're wrestling each other as young boys. And then, you know, they would continue to wrestle each other on and off for well over, I think, two decades. Or about maybe about two decades, perhaps, is more accurate. Um, There's also a profile of Killer Crawl Group from Puroresu Central. Um, What's interesting from this, in the New Japan World League Tournament, he came in third place in 1974 and 1976 and second place in 1975. So that gives you an idea of how strongly he was positioned in New Japan. Yeah. And that for three years in a row, he's in the top three. I guess that means he's probably the top, you know, the top foreigner. Yeah. I mean, he basically beats everyone except for Inoki and the other, you know, whoever was the second top Japanese guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so we talked about the German blood match, but what about the cast match (laughs) from September 1980? John, set the scene for this one. Well, this is I think this is when Lawler is coming back from his his injury, right? His his leg, his football injury. I would assume so. So he's still in a cast. Um, So so Krupp comes to Memphis and and challenges uh, Jerry Lawler. And there's a there's an interview segment with Lance Russell that is fantastic uh, and also shows a little bit of this match. Um, So the stipulation is that because Jerry Lawler is still in the cast, Killer Call Krupp will also be placed in a cast for this match. So, Yeah, so that uh, there's footage Memphis. of that, the interview and uh, some from the match on YouTube. Killer Karl Krupp, one of the great German heels of all time. Just And like oh, yes. I said, just the, the look uh, in his promo photos just is just so incredible and so menacing. And, and yep. So over the top that it's almost satire, but just, you know, but just not to that level. And that's really the key. Obviously, wrestling, you know, is about exaggerated over the top characters. And sometimes it can, you know, uh, evolve into comedy. Uh, We talked about the Gallaghers or Killer Carl Cox or Dick Murdoch and Krupp approach that line, but for the most part would not cross it. And that's what made him... uh, such a successful wrestler is he had a long run under the gimmick and, and, you know, long past when most of the German wrestlers days were done, uh, Krupp was still doing it. Krupp and yeah. Von Raschke were probably two of the last, you know, ones on a big stage. Of course, there were yeah. various German stormtroopers in continental and, uh, some other places, but, uh, as far as the big time goes, Krupp and Von Raschke yeah. might've been the last two, you know, big time yeah. German heels. So there you go. That is our look at the second quarter of 1964, the second quarter of 1973, and the Amarillo uh, Almanac for the full year of 1973. We talked about Art Nielsen, Bobby Graham, Mike Gallagher, Gypsy Joe Rosario, Tarzan Baxter, Butcher Brannigan, Killer Crawl Croup, and so many others. Be sure to check out our blog at chartingtheterritories.com where you can see all of these statistics we've created, and of course, listen to our other podcasts, Wrestling History Mysteries and Stats 101, because we are constantly learning new things. And as a matter of fact, each month, John and I will list on this podcast one 
new thing that each of us learned. So, John, you will start this month. What did you learn? So, Al, I know you've mentioned this particular wrestler on, on the blog before a few years ago when you, uh, I think it was you charting Australia in 1966, I believe. Um, and you mentioned his high school football career there. Nick Bockwinkle is the guy I'm talking about. Uh, and he had gone to, to several different high schools because of his father, you know, wrestler Warren Bockwinkle, moving around so much. Uh, so in his, his senior year, he went to uh, Jefferson High School in Daly City, California, right outside of San Francisco. And he was the fullback on his football team. And this month I learned that the tackle on the football team was a six foot four, 235 pound sophomore named John Madden. What? Yep. Now, I, I read this in an interview that's been that's from uh, AWA historian and author George Shire conducted with Bachwinkle back in all the way back in 1996. So this info has been floating around there for 25 years or whatever. Um, but I just found this out this month. Wow. Um, so this, the skeptic in me, you know, was wondering if this is like one of like wrestlers tall tales like from the bobby jagger school or whatever or if it's like john madden spelled m-a-d-d-o-n <laughs> yeah it was uh jack pfeffer uh john madden. like john um, voigt pencil on uh seinfeld yeah but i did some digging and found like a, like a, a newspaper article from uh the october 17th 1952 edition of the san mateo times that mentions them as teammates and it is indeed the, the real john madden uh, there's and there's no exceptionally flowery language or anything just something like Nick Bockwinkle at fullback and John Madden anchoring the offensive line. Uh, so I'll send that over to you, that article too, that I found. Yeah, you want to post please that, do. I thought that was fun. I didn't, I, I had no idea. I didn't know that either. So I, I learned the same thing that John learned, but I'm going to talk about something else. Okay. Um, the first time we did this, I, my, this month I learned was about a one time only match between Jackie Fargo and Bobby Heenan. And this month, my, this month I learned about another one-time-only singles match, also involving one of those two participants. So we're going to set the stage. Mobile, Alabama, November 6th, 1973, at the Municipal Auditorium. It is a night of champions where every match is a title match. For the Alabama State title, it's Dick Dunn versus Norvell Austin. For the Southeastern Junior Heavyweight title, it's Kublai Khan against Les Thatcher. No longer a wonder boy. I guess at this point, he's a wonder man. <laughs> For something called the Mid-South Women's Tag Team Titles, it is Paula Kay and Dottie Downs against Susan Green and Ava Seedorf. Isn't Ava the, the bodybuilder? Or no, that's Millie Zink. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, my mistake. Um, a Gulf Coast title match between Mike Boyette and a medic. Don't know which, which medic it was, but it's a medic. For the U.S. Tag Team titles, it's Flash and Rocket Monroe against the Infernos with J.C. Dykes. Um, I'm going to skip the next match and move up to the semi-main event, which was the <laughs> World Women's Title match. Well, I'm coming back to the other match. Gotcha. Um, but the semi-main was the World Women's Title match between Mula and Tony Rose. The main event saw Ken Lucas get a shot at NWA World Heavyweight Champion Jack Briscoe. But the third match from the top... For the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title, to the best of my knowledge, the only one-on-one -on -one singles match between Danny Hodge and Jackie Fargo. Oh, boy. 
which sounds amazing. I do know they wrestled in, I, I think, tag team matches in the late 60s in the Ghoulist territory. I think one time, I think they would have been on the same team because I believe Hodge was a babyface when he worked for Ghoulis. But as far as I can tell, this would have been the only singles bout between Jackie Fargo and Danny Hodge. Wow. Now, Fargo, earlier in the year, made his debut in Gulf Coast as a sub for Don Fargo. I think Fargo, Don, was uh, was in the territory and he was feuding with Mike Boyette. I don't know if he got hurt or if he left, but they advertised a match in Mobile for Boyette versus Don Fargo. But the results state that Don didn't show up and Jackie Fargo was there, which sort of means that they knew Don wasn't going to be there. Yeah. Um, um, why Fargo was there, though, there's another reason in that also on the card was a young Jerry Lawler. Huh. Coming in from Goulas, uh to work. So uh, perhaps, you know, it was a last minute phone call to Lawler saying, hey, can you bring Jackie with you? Or, you know, or Jackie was was bringing his young protege around to different places and happened to be there. But yeah, Danny Hodge and Danny Hodge won the match uh, by pinfall. But Danny Hodge versus Jackie Fargo, November 6, 1973 in Mobile, Alabama for Gulf Coast Championship wow. Wrestling. That'll do it for this edition of Charting the Territories. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. Um, always, if you have questions or comments on any of the things we talk about, feel free to ask uh, either publicly or privately. I'm very good with responding. Also, don't forget to visit our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. The Amarillo Almanac is available at payhip.com slash Charting the Territories. John, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? Oh, find me at, at John Boucher, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. And uh, lots of wrestling stuff, lots of some uh, some baseball, some music, mostly wrestling, though. Next month on the podcast, John, we're going to move ahead to 1981. Ooh. And we're going to look at the third quarter of the year in Mid-South, where the newcomers include two Bobs and a Ted. John? <gasps> Two Bobs and a Ted coming to Mid-South in 1981. Okay. Okay. Who would they be? Two Bobs and a Ted. The Ted has got to be all uh, the Ted DiBiase, correct? Correct. Bob. The two, two Bobs bo- came from the same place. One of them was a second generation wrestler whose Bob son Orton is Jr. a current superstar. Bob Orton Jr. All right. And the other Bob? Is it Bob Sweet? No. Oh, okay. God, why did I God, That's all right. I mean, hey, he's a Bob that worked there often. Uh, but uh, earlier in 1981, Orton, w- where was he working? He was working for the Poffos. Poffos. Who, what yes. other Bob worked for the Poffos at the same time? Stumping me, stumping me. Who also competed uh, in the 1968 Olympics? Oh, Bob Roop. Yes. Bob Roop. Ah, yes, yes, yes. There yes. you go. Oh, Bob oh, Roop. Man. Bob Orton Jr. and Ted DiBiase are among the newcomers. In the, and of course, in the case of DiBiase, he's returning. He's not a newcomer, but he's a returnee. We'll also continue looking at 1964 and move forward to the third quarter, where the newcomers include Chuck Carbo and Carl freaking Gotch. Plus, the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion returns to the territory, but it's not... Danny Hodge. Dun, dun, dun. To be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories, Wrestling History Mysteries, 
and Stats 101 are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Happy birthday to us and John, happy birthday to you. Thank you. Happy birthday. Happy anniversary. (laughs) 